Hey, good morning. We want to welcome you again to Maple Grove Evangelical Free Church. We're glad you're here with us this morning. And if you've been with us over the past few weeks, you know that we are in the midst of a summer sermon series we're calling Selah, a summer in the Psalms, in which we take a look at a different psalm each week. And so this morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 57. Psalm 57, and it's entitled in the Hebrew, El Teshkeath. El Teshkeath, meaning do not destroy. Do not destroy. Now, we're going to come back in a minute or two and take a look at that title and explore why is the title of this psalm, Do Not Destroy. But for now, for now, I'd like to tell you a story. It's a story out of the Bible. It's a story many of you are familiar with. And it's a story that really inspires and gives background and context to this psalm, Psalm 57. And so like many great stories, it has both a hero and it has a villain. So our hero today is David. Our villain, King Saul. And so this story takes place right around 1040 B.C., And again, like many great stories, we have characters in our story. We have God, we have Samuel, we have King Saul, and we also have David. And we're going to be operating out of 1 Samuel in this story. And specifically, where our story picks up is 1 Samuel 15. And at this point in time, what we have is God has put into place his king, his king over Israel, and that is Saul. So he has appointed King Saul, and he has done through, he's done through Samuel. So Samuel is operating here both as prophet and as judge of Israel at this point in time. So he already has Saul in place. And so now, as we pick up the story, God comes to Samuel and says, Samuel, I've got a task for you, and I need you, I need you to go to the king and give him this directive. And the directive is this, I want Saul to attack the Amalekites. I need him to defeat the Amalekites, and I need him to destroy the Amalekites. And I'm doing this in order to punish the Amalekites for the wrongdoing they have done to my people, the Israelites. And I want to be clear, God says with Samuel, I want to be clear with you, I mean completely destroy. Destroy all of the people all of the livestock and all of the things, complete destruction of the Amalekites. And so Samuel says, got it, I've got that and I'll take that message on and he does. So Samuel takes that message and turn to King Saul. King Saul hears the message and says, I've got that. And in turn, King Saul does exactly what he has asked. He attacks the Amalekites, he defeats the Amalekites and he destroys the Amalekites. However, he doesn't completely destroy the Amalekites. In fact, he leaves, he allows the king of the Amalekites to live, and he also allows some of the prized livestock to live. And this grieves God greatly. God is not happy with this outcome. And God comes to Samuel and he says, Did you see what our guy did over here? He actually was disobedient. And so, therefore, I am going to reject him. As king, and now Samuel, I have a new assignment for you. I need you to go and anoint the next king of Israel. And so Samuel says, Well, who is that going to be? God says, Well, I will take you to that person. So God does. He takes Samuel to David. And so Samuel does as he is asked. He anoints 
David as the next king, but in the meantime, we still have a present-day king in the form of King Saul. And again, God has rejected him as king, but he's still in place at this time. And the text actually tells us that the spirit of the Lord has left, has left King Saul. Now again, this is Old Testament, not New Testament. New Testament, we know, we take Jesus as Lord and Savior, we repent of our sins, the Holy Spirit indwells in us, and it doesn't go away. But this is Old Testament. The spirit of the Lord leaves King Saul, and it's replaced, and it's replaced by an evil spirit. And everyone notices the fact that there's an evil spirit there because Saul is completely tormented. And so much so that his attendants, Saul's attendants, come to him and say, we can see that there's something going on, king. And therefore, here's what we suggest. We suggest bringing in someone who plays the harp because that will soothe you, that will be helpful to you. And so King Saul says, absolutely, let's do that. And so one of the attendants says, well, I know somebody who plays the harp. His name is David. And so they bring in David. And immediately, King Saul takes a liking to David. And it's, it's good to say immediately because soon after, it's not such a liking. So King Saul ends up being soothed because David plays his harp. And it soothes the king because the evil spirit that torments him leaves. But when David stops playing the harp, the evil spirit returns and he continues to live in torment. Now, the scene shifts in our story. And now, this scene features a battle, an upcoming battle between the Israelites on one hill and then we have the arch enemy, the Philistines, on another hill. And in the middle is this valley. And what ends up happening is that we've got the Philistines, a giant Philistine, who is over nine feet tall, yelling over to the Israelites' side, you know this, right? Saying, show me your best fighting man. Show me your best. Send him over and I will defeat him and therefore you Israelites will be subject to we Philistines. However, if by chance he defeats me, then we Philistines will be subject to you. Israelites. And this goes on for an uncomfortably long time, doesn't it? This goes on for about 40 days. 40 days, this big guy shouting across to the Israelites. The Israelites, no one's raising their hand. This is a little bit of an awkward deal going on with the Israelites. Until one day, one day, David catches wind of this challenge from the Philistines and says, well, I'll fight the giant. I'll go out and fight Goliath. So he comes to King Saul and says, I'll I'll fight him, and King Saul says, you're in. We put you in the game. And you know the rest of that story. David defeats Goliath, but then King Saul, he puts David into his military, elevates his rank, and in ensuing battles, God just completely throws blessing upon David. So much so that his military feats become legendary within Israel, to the point to the point when the Israelites see King Saul and David together, they've got this kind of saying that they do, this kind of chant, and it goes something like this, and that is, oh, hey, look, there goes King Saul who has slain his thousands, and hey, there's David who has slain his tens of thousands. And you can imagine how this makes the king feel. He's already tormented by an evil spirit, and now he is filled with rage. He is filled with jealousy. So much so 
So much so that he tries to kill David twice. He tries to kill him with his spear. David eludes this, but now he's on the run. He is fleeing. David is on the run. King Saul is in pursuit. And this goes on for a while, right? This goes on for some time. Now, it would be anguishing and it would be tormenting if it went on for any length of time, but this doesn't go on for days. It doesn't go on for weeks or even months. It goes on for years. For years, King Saul and his men are in pursuit of David with the intent of murdering him. It goes on for close to 15 years, in fact, until one day, one day, David and his men are in the desert, and there are caves all around, many caves. These are long, deep caves, and they take refuge in one of these caves. And then along comes Saul and his men, about 3,000 strong. Now, King Saul doesn't know exactly where David is. He knows he's probably in the near vicinity, and the text says that King Saul needs a break. In fact, the text says he needs to relieve himself, which some people say, well, he's got to go to the bathroom. Well, he may have had to go to the bathroom, but most biblical scholars would say he needed a break. He's wandering around in the desert looking for this guy he's going to kill, wants to kill. So as it occurs, he chooses the same cave to rest in as David and his men. So King Saul comes into this cave, and you may wonder, well, did he see? And of course, you know he didn't see David and his men. We know that when we come from a place of light into a place of darkness, typically our pupils haven't adjusted fast enough. We don't see all that well. And again, these are deep caves. So King Saul, he never sees David and his men. Oh, but David and his men, they see King Saul. They see him come in. Again, they're operating from a place of darkness, looking out into light. They see him come in. And immediately, as you would anticipate, David's men turn to him and say, Look, God has delivered your enemy to you. He is delivered. Kill him. Be done with this nonsense of us running for close to 15 years away from this guy. And I, and I would say for me and maybe for you, that seems like a pretty logical response at the time. If you could imagine being chased for that period of time, fearing for your life each and every day. But what is, what is David's response here? David's response actually is to rebuke his men. He says, no, no, no. No, I will not kill God's anointed. I will not destroy him. Because King Saul is the anointed king. He is God's guy. And if I were to kill him, that would be exalting myself above God. And I will simply not do that. So he rebukes his men. And instead, what does David do? He sneaks up on King Saul. We don't know if the king is asleep by this time. We don't know if he's taken off his robe. What we do know from the text is that he clips off an end of his robe so that he can later kind of show King Saul, I could have killed you. I chose not to, but I could have killed you. And this brings us back to the beginning of our story. Psalm 57 in the Hebrew, El Teshkeath. Why is it entitled, Do Not Destroy? Well, do not destroy what? Actually, that's not the appropriate question, right? The appropriate question is, do not destroy whom? Because... David is our author of this psalm, and David is saying, do not destroy King Saul, because he is God's anointed. So let's turn now to Psalm 57. If you have your Bibles with you, 
If you would turn to Psalm 57 in the Old Testament, if you have a pew Bible, that's on page 460. And as we look at Psalm 57, please keep that story in mind because David essentially writes Psalm 57 in response to this torment, this anguish, this strife, this stress that he has experienced for years of being chased by a king who is tormented by an evil spirit who wants to kill him. David writes this psalm out of that. And he really does so in two parts. And what I would suggest is for all of us, as we go through life's strife and as we have hardship, David offers a great model here in Psalm 57 for how we might respond to these sorts of times, these sorts of issues. Psalm 57 is 11 verses long. In the first six verses, we're going to take a look at David's earnest prayer. He is praying to God. He is pleading with God. That is his first response. And his second response, we'll take a look at verses 7 through 11. This is David's praise of the Lord. He praises him despite his circumstances. So pray and praise. Pray and praise. This is David's response to the turmoil that he has just come through. And he reveals it to us in Psalm 57. So let's, let's read Psalm 57 now. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. And we'll stop there and let us take a look at these first six verses. Again, from the standpoint of what is David's first response? It is to pray. It is to pray. And if we take a look at these six verses, and if you will, with me, break it down into three subsections. The first subsection being, as we take a look at verses four and six, David sets the scene. He comes to God and he says, here's my situation, God. Does God already know it? Of course he already knows it. But he sets the situation. He says, this is how I'm feeling. This is how I'm feeling. Let's look again at four and six. Four. I am in the midst of lions. I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Six, they spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt such anguish and turmoil? Perhaps it's a failed marriage. Perhaps it's a broken relationship, a friendship that isn't going so well. Perhaps it's chronic pain. Perhaps it's a surgery that you've just come through. Perhaps it's stress from the job. Perhaps it's stress from home. Parents, it may be stress from your kids. Maybe you feel like your kids are driving you crazy. Kids, maybe you feel like your parents are driving you crazy. And that frequently is the common in our house, I think, actually. 
But have you ever felt this? And you might be thinking, well, but this is, this is a guy, David, who was fleeing for his life and has done so for years. How does my burden compare with that? God does not measure the burden. If you are burdened, he asks you to bring it to him. There is no burden too big or too small for our mighty God. So again, David sets the situation, lets God know how he's feeling. And then as we look at verses 1 and 2, verses 1 and 2, we see David just pleading for mercy. He is seeking refuge. He needs help. Verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. Not once, but twice he asked for mercy. For in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. God did not design us to take on all of life's burdens on our own. He yearns for us to bring these burdens to him. If you're like me, sometimes you might sidestep some of these burdens. You might not look directly into them. You might avoid them, or you might even try to tackle them on your own. And I know for me, that doesn't always meet with a whole lot of success. God designs us to bring burdens to him. And sometimes, whether it's we're being chased by a king who wants to kill us, whether it's stress from work or at home, or whether it's a great white shark hunting us down, sometimes we just need a bigger boat. So check this out. Stop playing with yourself, Hooper. Slow ahead, if you please. You heard him, slow ahead. I can go slow ahead. Come on down and chump some of this. How many of you have seen the movie Jaws? That, that soundtrack still gives me the chills whenever I hear that uh, come in. It's still a little bit hesitation uh, for me when I get into the ocean, just thinking back to that movie. But I love that scene, and I think it's really relevant for our topic today, you know, where the police chief, he's chumming. It's kind of ironic, right? He's trying to draw the shark to him. He, you know, little does he know, the shark is actually hunting him. 
And he does draw the shark up, and he sees it. He's in a state of semi-shock. He wanders back to the captain, and, of course, he utters the line, you're going to need a bigger boat. And for us, the good news is we have a bigger boat. We have God Almighty. He is our bigger boat, and he yearns to hear from us, and he yearns to take on our burdens. We have the bigger boat. And then in the third subsection of this, this whole pray theme that David has as his response is really verse 5. Verse 5, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So what, is, what does David do? I mean, he's exalting the Lord. He is harrowed. He is under all of this duress, and yet he still exalts God and puts him in his proper place. So again, what is David's first response? It is to pray. He sets the scene he lets God know how he's feeling. He begs for mercy. He looks for help. But all the while, he exalts the Lord. Now let's switch gears, because David switches gears. So he transitions to verses 7 through 11, where he praises God. Let me read, beginning in verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O God, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You know, many people call the book of Psalms the praise book of the Bible. And really, we can see that here, can't we, in, in verses 7 through 11. He is just completely praising God despite these circumstances. It's easy for us to ask God for help when we are burdened. It is difficult to praise him through the burden. But that's what we see David doing clearly here. And I think praise is one of those terms that we, we, we really know what it means but we don't pause on it very often. At least I know I don't pause on it very often. So I thought it might be helpful just to pause on praise and examine that, beginning with the definition of praise. So we might say praise God, but what are we, what are we really saying when we say that? Well, I might suggest that praise is a joyful, and again, it's important that it's joyful. Praise is the joyful thanking and adoring of God. Praise is the joyful thanking and adoring of God. Adoring isn't a term I use all that often, and I don't hear a lot of guys using it all that often, but that's, a, that's essentially what we're doing when we're praising God. We are adoring Him. So if that is our definition of praise, I think the most logical next question is, why do we do it? Why do we praise God? Again, easy for us to come to God with all of our needs and wants, hard to come and praise Him, so why do we do so? Why are we called to do so? And there are many reasons as to why we should praise God, but let me offer out a couple right here for us to really pause on. One, we praise God because He is just flat out worthy. He's just flat out worthy of our praise. And second, we praise God because it's good for us. It's good for us to praise God. So first, we praise God because he is worthy. And there is so much scripture to back this up. But let me offer out four different pieces of scripture. Psalm 96.4, for great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. 
Psalm 145.3, great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. I love that. His greatness no one can fathom. In 2 Samuel 22.4, I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise and have been saved from my enemies. And then finally, Revelation 4.11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We praise God because he is just flat out worthy of praise. And second, we praise God because it's good for us. Well, that begs the question, well, why? Why is it good for us? It's good for us because it's good to be reminded of the greatness of the Lord. It's good to be reminded of how great he is, who we are dealing with. We're not dealing with Sally, the neighbor, or Joe at work. We're dealing with God. So we could have a whole sermon series on how great God is because now we're talking about his characteristics, right? So let me offer out three, three things for us to chew on. Why is God great? These are the omnis, if you will, the omnis. So first off, God is omnipotent. God is omnipotent, meaning he is all-powerful. We worship a God who is all-powerful. His power has no boundaries. It is infinite. We know that, but do you ever pause and just think? His power is infinite. We worship a God who is all-powerful. We worship a God who is omnipresent. He is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere at once. This is the superhero of superheroes we've got going on right now, right? He is everywhere at once. He has no spatial boundaries. So he is all-powerful. He, he is everywhere at once, and he is also omniscient. He is omniscient. He knows all. There is nothing that he does not know. I apologize for that double negative. His knowledge is infinite. Again, this is the God that we worship. He is all-powerful. He is everywhere at once, and he knows all. He is so worthy to be praised. It is so good for us to be reminded of his greatness. So where does that leave us? Where does that leave us from an application standpoint? Again, this is Psalm 57. David writes this psalm. He writes this psalm in response to being chased for close to 15 years of someone trying to murder him. He is under tremendous stress, duress, distress, anguish, hardship. And he writes this for us and it offers us a great model for how we are to respond when faced with this. So how are we to respond when you are faced with a bad day, when you are faced with a failed relationship? We are to respond in kind. We pray and we praise. We pray and we praise. When we pray, we bring God the situation. We let God know how we're feeling about it. We ask for mercy and for help, and all the while we exalt him. And we still come back and praise him despite the hardship we're going through. It is so unnatural for us, but so important. We praise him and we pray. That, for us, for the Christ follower, that is our natural application from Psalm 57. So with that, let me pray now, and then we'll transition into worship. Father God, we come to you humbly and thank you for your word. Father, it is so good and has so much to teach us. Father, we thank you for Psalm 57 and for this model that you have really presented through David. Father, to pray and to praise 
you in hardship, you in difficult times. Father, help us to be people who bring our burdens to you, Father, not to take them on by ourselves, but that we bring them to you knowing full well that you hear our prayers and you answer them according to your perfect will. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.